0: Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Listen, please, to the inspired word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand the proverb and to saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. To the reading of the word of God, let us all say, "Amen." you may be seated. You saw in your bulletin that the sermon title is God's Wisdom for Contemporary Youth. On the final Sunday of the month, I try almost always to preach to the family. Um, I'm doing that this Sunday. Now today, notice in your bulletin, you have a very simple one-page outline. Be sure, if you will, to take it out and take it home. And read the Bible verses. Notice, beside each of these points under God's wisdom, there are Bible verses. I didn't read all of those today, so take this home. Also, please feel free to write on this today. If you write on it, you'll want to keep it, because you'll make it your own. Write on this today. Make it your own. Put notes on this. It's easy to follow. God's wisdom for uh, contemporary youth. The reason today that our world is filled with so much moral pollution... And the reason it's filled with such frightening evil is that we have turned our backs on the triune God. The wisest man who ever walked on the earth, apart from our Lord, said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul tells us about the wicked there is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, If we don't fear God, we become fools. And our world is a fool-filled world, a culture of utter folly because we've abandoned God. That's why. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? We hear that expression. And uh, it is respect and reverence and even awe for God. It includes even terrifying reverence. I hear people talk about the fear of the Lord today, ministers and theologians, and the first thing they say is, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be afraid of God. That's like the first thing they say. Because we wouldn't want a God like that, that we would have to fear. Now, it's remarkable how clear the Bible is about all this, but how infrequently Christians talk about it today. I was reading an article this week in Christianity Today, and uh, not all articles in Christianity Today are good, by any means, this one was. It's titled, How We Forgot the Holiness of God. I want you to listen to this because it's so powerful. When God shows up in the scripture, people cower and tremble. They go mute. The ones who manage speech fall into despair. Fainters abound. Take the prophet Daniel. He could stare down lions, but when the heavens opened, he swooned. Ezekiel, too, was overwhelmed by his vision of God. After witnessing Yahweh's throne chariot lift into the air with the sound of a jet engine, he fell face first to the ground. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of the Lord was so overpowering, the Bible says the priests could not perform their service. The New Testament types fared no better. John's revelations left him lying on the ground as though dead. The disciples dropped when they saw Jesus transfigured. Even the intrepid Saul, marching to Damascus, collapsed before the blazing brilliance of the resurrected Christ. The writer goes on and he says, I understand why such accounts are jarring for us. They stand in stark contrast from popular depictions. In movies, angels are like teddy bears with wings. God is Morgan Freeman or some other evuncular figure, that is, uncle-like figure. In scripture, however, divine encounters are terrifying, leaving even the most stout and spiritual vibrating with fear or lying face down unconscious. That, I say, my friends, is what it means to fear the Lord, to recognize His greatness and His holiness and His differentness from us. Now, we need to understand that God isn't some superhuman. I like the expression of one theologian, this is beautifully put. One cannot speak of God simply by speaking of man in a loud voice. God isn't a supersized human, you understand. God is God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. book of Proverbs was written to teach wisdom to young men, and also, of course, by extension, young women too. If you're young, or not so young, and want to escape the evil of our age, and the corruption, and the poison, and the depravity, and the drunkenness and the drug addiction and the sexual diseases and a seemingly meaningless worthless life listen to Solomon listen to him. Solomon God taught Solomon the truth and he teaches us I'm going to mention today very briefly and notice on your list seven of those very basic simple powerful truths and that's just in the first three chapters I just like started reading through Proverbs and I got to seven like that Had I kept going, there would be like 117 points today, which we're not going to have. First, notice this. Wise people learn by advice, and fools learn by experience. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon's constantly telling young people to obey godly counsel. In fact, that's what the entire book of Proverbs is about. You read the whole book of Proverbs, the entire book is godly counsel. That's what it's about. Now, that idea is not very popular today. The popular idea today is, you know, how can you know if something is right or wrong? How can you know if something is good for you? How can you know until you try it? Don't knock it until you've tried it. Whether it's hard drugs or binge drinking or premarital sex, alternative sex, living a life of stealing and deception and lying. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't let anybody else tell you Try it on your own. Now, I admit that that is a perfect example of wisdom. Worldly wisdom. It has nothing to do with God's wisdom. Now, we know this, of course, when it comes to very small children, do we not? I mean, we tell them not to touch the hot stove so they won't be burned. We never tell them to encourage them to touch a burning oven. But somehow, uh, some way, somewhere along the way, we lose that wisdom after a while. And our attitude is, well, you know, sort of try out dope for yourself and then decide. Everybody knows you ought to try sex before marriage and see if everything works out. You can get away from Christ's church, get away from God's house. You can get unbelieving friends. Try it out and see what happens. And you can always change later if it doesn't work out. Yeah, that's very wise, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. My friends know this, human history is littered with the moral remains of people who refused to listen to godly counsel and had to find out the facts on their own. Amen. I was thinking this week about Mr. Worldly Wise Man. I've been thinking about, of course, John Bunyan and meeting Mr. Worldly Wise Man in Pilgrim's Progress as I teach the children every week. You know, I thought, where did that worldly wisdom get started? And it struck me, it started in the Garden of Eden. The serpent was the first Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Do you think about that he god gave wise counsel to adam and eve but that wise counsel wasn't sufficient for adam and eve the serpent convinced eve find out on your own god doesn't have your best interest at heart don't trust what god says find out on your own you don't need to listen to what god says our entire race was immersed in sin because one man and one woman wouldn't take wise counsel but wanted to experiment for themselves Point number two, you on your outline there? You following your outline? It's very simple. Keep it. Second, stay away from wicked people. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now David already reminded us about that in Psalm 1. Remember we read it, blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Paul later declared bad company ruins good morals. Very clearly. Some Christians have the idea that if they spend a lot of time with wicked people, they'll influence the wicked for righteousness. The Bible teaches just the opposite. It teaches that the wicked will poison the righteous. Now, you kind of know that, right? Don't you just kind of know that? If you step on a chair, is it much easier when you step on a chair to pull someone up to your level? Or is it easier if someone's on a chair for you to pull them down? It's a lot easier, is it not, to pull them down, right? isn't that right clearly it teaches the wicked will poison the righteous i'm not talking about preaching the gospel to unbelievers of course we have to do that this verse is talking about making the wicked your companions if you have wicked companions you'll soon become wicked If you hang out with fornicators, if you hang out with drug addicts, if you hang out with drunkards, if you hang out with secularists or the proud or thieves, if you hang out with those who mock God and His word, that's soon exactly what you'll become. You want to become a godly person? You want to become a wise man or woman? Go out of your way to become a companion of godly and wise people. Go out of your way to find friends like that. Gravitate toward godly people. Third. Boy, this one's powerful. You get treasure, or rather, you get wisdom by treasuring the word of God. Um, if you read the first few verses of chapter 2, of Proverbs 2, God makes a great promise. Here's what he says. He says, if you seek for wisdom as you would hidden treasure, if you cry out for it, if you want that wisdom at all costs, you'll get it. Well, where do you find it? And he says so in verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. You have it on your paper. Read it when you get home. You find it in God's word. It says, knowledge and understanding and wisdom come out of his mouth. It's a metaphor. God doesn't have a physical mouth. Jesus does. God doesn't have a mouth. It means his word inscribed in the Bible. It means that if you want wisdom, you have to pant for that wisdom and want it more than anything else. You have to want it more than anything. You have to seek for it like hidden treasure. Now, listen carefully. You can't be wise apart from reading and knowing and cherishing and treasuring the word of God. You just can't. This is the book where God lays out his his wisdom. Now I said a little while ago that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But know this, it's just the beginning. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. Solomon doesn't say it's all wisdom in the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. To get wisdom fully, you have to get it in the word of God. You can't get it anywhere else but the Word of God. Not just by having Christian friends. Not just by praying. Not just by attending church. Not just by singing great Christian hymns. All of those are important. But you cannot get wisdom, by the way, apart from reading the Word of God. But but Solomon doesn't just say you get wisdom by reading the Bible. He says you have to treasure it. Now, we have an entire generation of churchgoers today. I hope nobody like here's this. You better not be. An entire generation of churchgoers who just never read the Bible. Only time they even see Bible verses is in a church bulletin on Sunday. Now, the irony is that the Bible has never been more available than today. I don't mean just in hard copies and in bookstores. I mean on the web. You don't even have to buy the Bible. Nobody can say... If I had money, then I'd have a Bible. You don't have to have money today. You can read the Bible for free just about any time you want. Or you can download the entire Bible for a dollar or six dollars. It's simply amazing. The Bible's never been more accessible today, yet there was never more ignorance of the Bible than today. The world today is filled with fools, and the church today is filled with fools because people don't treasure the Bible. Now, some people say they don't have time. That's just false. Do you know, you can actually time this, because I do things like this. You can read most chapters of the Bible anywhere from between four and eight minutes. And that's just reading one chapter of the Bible a day, which is a lot better than not reading any. If you don't have time to read four to eight minutes a day of God's word, cut something else out. That's how important the word is. Cut something else out. Do something else. Get rid of everything else so that you can read the word. But if you read the word of God, if you treasure the word of God, it soon starts to change the way that you think. It changes the way you make decisions. And little by little, you get wisdom. You start looking at the world the way God does. Know that. You want a worldview, the right kind of worldview... You start reading and immersing yourself in the word of God and it starts changing the way that you look at the world and the way that you make decisions. You know why people make bad decisions? Because they're not immersed in the word of God. That's why. The word of God reshapes your thinking so that you know how to act in a wise way. That only happens, though, if we read and treasure the word of God. Now, fourth, avoid sexual sin and fornication at all costs. Solomon writes that if you treasure God's word, it will keep you from sexual sin. Hear me very well on this, young people and older people. By the way, that includes lust and pornography and all sorts of sins today. We live in a hyper-sexualized age. Softcore pornography is virtually everywhere you look. What would have been considered pornography 50 years ago is available when you just open your eyes. Just about anywhere. All sex is permitted and encouraged today. About the only remaining taboos today are pedophilia and incest. But trust me, if things don't change in 20 or 30 years, incest and pedophilia will be as common today as premarital sex and extramarital sex. People say, oh, that would like never happen. That's what people said 30 years ago about same-sex marriage. Now, the Bible's not a book that advocates sexual repression. The Bible teaches that sexual intercourse is God's wonderful gift, according to Hebrews 13.4. It should be reserved for marriage. Why? Because God created us, and he knows what's best for us, and he knows what makes us happy. Sex outside of marriage gives immediate pleasure, but it brings long-term pain and long-term destruction. I must say, I sympathize deeply with young single Christians today. They're pressured into sex wherever they turn. Our culture has just turned its back on God and his word and his healthy sexual standards. I want you young people to know that this church and I will do anything we can to help you. We'll help anybody that wants to do right. I mean, however you're tempted, however you've fallen into sin, please talk to me about it. I won't beat you over the head with a hammer. Don and Michelle and I and other people here will help anybody that wants to do right. But if you think you can throw God's sexual standards out the window without paying a price, you're dead wrong. If you throw away God's sexual standards, you'll live a poisoned and an enslaved life. And by the way, you don't have to read the Bible to know that, though you should. You can see it in the lives of the people who do it. Fifth, trust God's word and not your own ideas. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. This is now in chapter 3. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Don't lean on your own understanding. We might think we're so wise apart from God, but we're nothing more than Mr. Worldly Man. Now, I don't know how many of you have read James 3. It's a powerful passage. I think I've got it written there. James 3, verses 13 and 18. In James 3, we read about two different kinds of wisdom. James talks about wisdom from above and wisdom from below. By the way, you want to read the book of Proverbs in the New Testament? What is the book of Proverbs in the New Testament? James. James, James is the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. Okay? Same sort of thing. Wisdom from above comes from God and his word. And wisdom that comes from below, he says, is essential and devilish. Demonic. That's what the Bible says. Wisdom from below is not just bad. Oh, it will get you into trouble. That's not what it says. James says it's demonic. It's a Satan. Worldly wisdom, he's saying, is satanic. James there is talking about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Wisdom from below. Rooted in self-centeredness. You want your way all the time. You don't care about anybody else. Oh, you're very wise indeed. The problem is that that's demonic, satanic wisdom. If you want to gratify your own sexual desires all the time. You want to control everybody else all the time. You don't care how your actions hurt other people. You slander people and gossip and destroy the character of people you don't like. Your wisdom is wise indeed. Demonic wisdom. Solomon says, don't lean on your own understanding. Now, some of us have decisions confronting us today. Some are family decisions. Some are business decisions. Some are financial decisions. Some are church decisions. Our approach should never be, what's the smart move? But what does God want? That's always the issue. An immediate temptation we're faced with when we come upon a difficulty is, what's the smart thing to do? Hmm, I'm going to get on the web and find out the smart thing to do. Because everybody knows everything you read on the web is true and wise. No, let's retrain our thinking so that our first response is, what does God want us to do? You see, God gets to define what's smart. We don't get to define that. God defines what's smart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That means put full confidence in him to do what's best for us in every situation. Now note this comforting thought. God is constantly looking out for his people. Constantly. God's never trying to harm his people. Even when he allows hardships and trials to come to us, he's not trying to harm his people. That's why we can trust God at every point, because God always has our best interests at heart. Always. You say, well, if I obey the, obey the word of God, that's going to be hard. You don't understand. God has your best interest at heart. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen if you go this way. And that's why He tells you to go this way. You say, Well, I think it's smarter to go this way because it looks better. You don't understand. You don't know, and He does know. That's why you trust the Lord. Sixth. If you put God first with your money, he'll provide for you in ways you cannot imagine. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. If you do this, Proverbs 3 says, your barns will just overflow. Now, the money that we get is all of it is God's gift. You know that, don't you? Uh, God has first claim on our money just as he has first claim on everything. And that's why Solomon uses the word he wrote in an agricultural society first fruits the first fruits are the very beginning of a harvest in an agricultural society the first fruits are the indication of the rest they're the best they represent the entire harvest you understand you have the first fruits we would say of apples and the first fruits come in and the pickers look at them and the assessors and they say oh this is going to be a really good harvest because we see the first fruits are good and therefore this is going to be a really good harvest when we give God our first fruits, the first part, we're acknowledging that he has a claim on everything. Now, if you learn to tithe to God when you're young, you'll never have a problem tithing when you're older. Now, do you young people here understand that? My first job was snipping the weeds around the church where my dad, who's here today, was pastoring. I, probably, I don't know, nine or ten years old. And I think my pay was $5 a week. First time I got paid, my dad took that $5 and turned it into coins. And he took out 50 cents. And he said, the first tenth of everything that you get always goes back to God. The first tenth always goes back to God. Put it in the offering plate every time. Now, listen carefully. From that day to this, I have tithed on every single dollar I have ever made. If you learn to tithe on $5 and tithe faithfully, you'll never have a problem tithing on $50 or $500, or $5,000, or $5 million. And know this, if you won't tithe on $5, you won't tithe on $5,000. But if you do, if you do, God promises remarkable blessings. God doesn't promise that all tithers are going to be millionaires. He doesn't promise you'll never endure hard times financially. But He does promise that He'll bless us abundantly. He'll provide for our needs and our wants in ways that we cannot envision and that we cannot predict. Now, it's very interesting that in Proverbs 3.10, he says that our presses, our vats, will burst with wine. Now, in the Bible, wine is often identified with joy and rejoicing. Now, misuse of wine, drunkenness, is a terrible thing. But wine in general is identified with joy and rejoicing. In Deuteronomy 14, in Psalm 104, here in Proverbs chapter 31, in the New Testament. And I'm sure that's why Solomon chose that particular metaphor, or the Holy Spirit chose it. He's not teaching that if you tithe, you're going to own a vineyard and a winery. He's teaching that God will fill your life with joy and happiness and satisfaction, such as you would get if you have an overflowing wine that's what he's saying God made us as his creatures therefore he alone knows what satisfies us and when we give back to him the first, the best he satisfies and delights our hearts that's the word of God and then seventh and finally Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 do not become weary with God's discipline God doesn't bring hardships and trials on your lives because he doesn't care about you or us He doesn't bring them because he's punishing us. He brings them because he's transforming us into better disciples. Now those two words have the same root. You ever think about that? Disciple and discipline. And know this. You can't be a disciple of Jesus without discipline. You can't. Sharon was telling our children the other day about an experience from her own childhood. She was playing with a couple of neighborhood girlfriends. And one of the girls let her parents just do. Her parents let her do anything she wanted. Just anything. And uh, Sharon and her her other friend, besides this third one, were just complaining that their parents just laid down rules where they had to go, when they ate, and uh, when they went to bed. And this other girl said, I wish my parents did that. Your parents love you enough to care about what you're doing. Well, know this, God loves us enough to care about what we're doing. God's not an absentee parent. He doesn't run off. He's not so busy doing other things he doesn't care for every one of us in a very profoundly personal way. Men and women who are most used by God are those he has brought through great hardships to make them very effective for him. Now know this. Some of you here need to hear this. All of us need to hear this. There are ways that you can know God and lessons that you can learn only in hard times. Mm Mm-hmm. It's when you're betrayed, and when you're in weakness, and when you're fatigued, and when you're ill, perhaps even on the point of death, and when you're lonely, that God makes you and me into stronger disciples. This also means something else, and hear me on this. 21st century Americans need to hear this. This means that if you're committed above all else to a life of ease, you can't be a good Christian. Hard times make good Christians. Don't be angry or weary at hardships. So let's review. Do you have your sheet of paper there? Did you write on it? Are you going to take it home, young people? Learn by advice, not by experience. Stay away from wicked people. Treasure the Word of God. Don't just read the Word of God, treasure the Word of God. Avoid sexual sins. Give your heart to God alone. Honor God with your money. Don't get tired of God's discipline. If you want to be wise. If you want to avoid great shipwreck that will destroy your entire life. If you want to be 85 years old and look back on your life with great joy and great delight and great satisfaction. These are the ways to do it. These are the wise ways, the right ways, because these are God's ways. And know this. God's wisdom is not the wisdom of Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man always ends in destruction and death and damnation. Let us pray. I'm going to ask my dear friend Michelle, fellow elder. Michelle, pray that God infuses our young people and infuses all of us with the wisdom of his word.